Let's hear God's word. Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He has given food to those who fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. He has declared to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are verity and justice. All his precepts are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. All right. Well, as we begin here today, I want to call our attention to the first of the catechism questions. And, of course, the question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is a summary of the most important thing that we can do in life, to glorify our God and to enjoy him. Now, there are many aspects as to what that means, but one of the key aspects is simply praising God, worshiping God, to give him glory. We can do it here together as a body. We can do it individually. We can do it with a small group of believers and, uh, and yet this is really the most important thing that we can do as an individual, a human, and especially uh, as one of God's children, and that is to praise our God. And so as we come to this section of the Psalms, that's the theme. In fact, we've already started this theme here in Book 5. Now we move on from Psalm 110, one of the most significant Psalms of all the Psalms, and frankly, one of the most challenging psalms of all of them, to one that is a bit more straightforward for us, but also is significant in its own way. Psalm 1 and 10 especially engage the mind. This is how we need to think. This is what we need to believe. Um, Psalm 111 does that as well, but also talks about our proper response. In fact, it begins with that here in verse 1. All right, well, let's look, uh, if you would, then, at the handout from uh, Palmer Robertson. And uh, on the front page, we see, again, an overview of the Psalms. As I've said many times now, remember, this division into the five books is presented to us in the text. We're not imposing this. Um, But the terms that he uses here, he does impose, um, but they seem to be a fair summary of what each book uh, is communicating. There, there are multiple themes, multiple ideas, but the overall seem to be these. And so in book one, <clears throat> David is established as king in Psalm two, and he faces lots of opposition. And so that's the overall theme. In book two, same basic ideas, but David is more established. Uh, there's still opposition, maybe not as much in some ways, and it ends with this great pinnacle in Psalm 72 uh, and so forth. Um, But through it all, there's more of this outward focus 
uh, to the nations. Now in book three, the emphasis here is on <clears throat> the failure of Israel, the failure of the priesthood, the failure of the monarchy, and they go into exile. In book four, they are in exile, but they are relearning what is most important to them. But it ends in Psalms 104, 105, and 106 with three psalms that say hallelujah. While in exile, they finally got their head on straight again. They remembered what was most important, and they end by praising Yahweh. And that then spills into book five. And we saw that beginning in Psalm 107. So if you turn over here then to the page with the diagram of book five, you can see here then specifically how this is arranged. Now, most people say book five, basically the first half takes you through Psalm 119. Now, numerically, that's not half the Psalms, but it's, it's uh, basically the first half of book five. And we started with Psalm 107, which talks about the return of the promised land. And so we are to praise God for this. In Psalm 108, 9, and 10, we see these three Psalms of David. And in Psalm 108, it is more praise because they are back in the promised land. But Psalm 109 reminds us, hey, there's still opposition to, there's still troubles. Psalm 110 then says the Davidic promises are not gone. They are reiterated. And, of course, we focused on that in this vital, what he calls, focal messianic psalm here. And so we've seen that the Messiah is going to be God and man, priest and king, father and son ideas, and so on. So not surprisingly then, after this reiteration um, of the Davidic promises, that the next seven psalms are part of a section of praising God. The Messiah is going to come. Well, let's praise God for it. And so we have these seven psalms that follow Psalm 110. Then we have Psalms 118 and 119. We have the gospel again in Psalm 118, the Messiah coming, and then Psalm 119, the focus of law. So again, law, gospel together, like we saw in Psalms 1 and 2, and we also see in Psalms 18 and 19. Now, more specifically, Psalms 111 to 117, these seven Psalms, uh, Robertson calls this a kind of a pyramid. And we see this at various times in the Psalms where you have a section of psalms that all go together, and there's one central psalm. In this case, it's Psalm 114, and you have, in this case, three psalms on either side of it. And this, then, is called the Hallelujah section. And so Psalms 111 and 112 begin with Hallelujah. Psalm 113 begins and ends with Hallelujah. Psalms 115 and 16 end with Hallelujah. And Psalm 117 begins and ends with hallelujah. Now, which one did I miss? Psalm 114 does not have the term hallelujah, but that's the pinnacle psalm, the one at the top of the pyramid. And it also is an emphasis on the Exodus, how God redeemed his people, saved them. And so the pinnacle of the pyramid is God saves us, and on either side of it, <clears throat> you have these psalms of praise and thanksgiving. So we not only see these psalms flowing out of Psalm 110, but also in and of themselves centered around redemption. 
So because of this, this section of Hallelujah Psalms is often called the Egyptian Hallel, because obviously God brought them out of Egypt. All right, now one more thing to show you here on this diagram, and that is that Psalms 111 and 112 are acrostic psalms. I'll say more about that here in a bit. So, in summary then, we have Book 5 talking about returning to the promised land, renewal of the Davidic promises, a refocus on the Messiah who's going to come, and then this fitting response of praise. And in particular, we'll see in this section then, the recalling of the Exodus. All right, so here's our, our broad view briefly. Let's turn now to our handout from Psalm 111, if you turn on the back, and uh, <clears throat> show you here briefly then some outlines. And uh, I, I give you four here, and as you look at them, do you see what jumps out at us? Is that they're all different. Okay, Most of the time, uh, and possibly all the time, I didn't go back and check, that, that every psalm we've looked at, I think, all the psalms have had a similar outline, but they just defined it a little differently, but they broke down the verses in the same way. Um, and yet there were times where they had other ways of looking at it. Well, in this case, they're all different. <laughs> what is the same is they all begin with hallelujah, and three of the four separate verse one. But then the rest is different. I, I think, actually... The first one is probably the best one for us to follow. And, um, and that's because when you have an acrostic, it's its own form of poetic style and device. And acrostics are, can you say, notorious for being difficult to subdivide. And that's because you're going with a stream of thought kind of idea from A to Z, so to speak. So again, I'll say more about that in a moment. Now, if you look also at the statistics, very simple and straightforward here. Yahweh is used five times when you include Yah, and then pronouns referring to him, 24 times. And then once, actually, the psalmist refers to himself specifically. The second time is assumed, and you see that in verse 1. So he's not focusing on himself. He's focusing on God. But notice... It's not a personal prayer. It's not you, Lord, or something like that. He's not speaking to God directly. He's calling on us to praise Yahweh for who he is. And so this psalm emphasizes God's character and ways, and we are to praise him for it. And so the, the other pronoun that's used here is you plural, right? At the very beginning, hallelujah. Okay, so it's, uh, there are several differences here, actually, based on what we have seen before. All right, now if you look at the beginning of the psalm, obviously there's no title. We've seen one in the last three psalms, but we don't see one here. So we do not know who wrote this psalm. Uh, most people think it was written after the exile, um, but we don't know for sure. What seems to be sure is that the same person wrote Psalms 111 and 112. And I'll say more about that when we get to Psalm 112. There, there are several similarities. All right. Well, he begins here then with hallelujah. 
Now, let me say a few words about this word. It's actually two words in the Hebrew. We put it together. It's hallelujah. And we just run it all together. So we're saying the Hebrew word here, hallelujah. And it's a command. It's a command to all of you, to yuns, to use guys, however you want to say it. All y'all must praise Yah. This is the command. And so whoever this author is, he's commanding all believers, including ourselves, to praise Yah. Now, Yah is the shortened form of Yahweh. Um, pretty straightforward in that way. Uh, it's actually used 49 different times. Um, so when you add that to the name Yahweh itself, you get almost 7,000 times Yahweh is mentioned in the scriptures, the Old Testament. Um, but 49 of them are Yah, and all but six are in the Psalms. Um, and so it tends to be used in this poetic context. But the point's pretty straightforward. We are to praise our covenant Lord, the one who has existed forever, right? I am, but also the one who has entered into relationship with us by way of covenant. I will be, right? I will be with you. So both thoughts are part of the name Yahweh, not just existence, not just with us by covenant, but both. I am and I will be. All right, now, <clears throat> that's the command. That's what we are supposed to do. Now, let's step back a moment and talk about this term hallelujah. Uh, I believe it was Palmer Robertson, actually, who first uh, pointed this out to me and, and as I was reading this book. Um, the word hallelujah is not used in the scriptures until Psalm 104. And I'm like, ah, that can't be true. So I went and looked it up, and sure enough, it is true. The, the verb itself, halal, is used 167 times, 94 times in the Psalms, and it's used a lot. But the term itself, hallelujah, is not used very often. The first time is in Psalm 104, and then once in Psalm 105 and Psalm 106. So this first hallelujah section at the end of book four, and then we see it used seven times here in this section, Psalms 111 to 117. And then ten more times in Psalms 146 to 150, the last of the hallelujah sections. Now there's only one other time where we see hallelujah, not in one of these sections. And that's Psalm 135, and there it's used actually three times. So 23 times the term hallelujah is used in the Old Testament, and they're all in the Psalms. Now, there is a related word, not hallelujah, but hallelujah, Yahweh. So it includes the whole name, and that's used four times. In the New Testament, hallelujah, without the H on the front, is only used four times. And they're all in Revelation chapter 19 when Babylon falls. So 31 times this term is used in all the scriptures. Now, I don't know about you, but I found that very surprising. And I think partly it's because we use the term hallelujah rather generally. Yeah, the Steelers finally scored a touchdown. Yeah, hallelujah, you know. We tend to use it in these casual kind of ways. Okay? But not in the Bible. The Bible uses it very carefully, very specifically. Almost, can you say, formally? So the term that we use that would be equivalent 
It's not just the term hallelujah, but this formal idea of praising God, we use the term doxology. Doxology means the study of praise. We are praising Yahweh. And we use some of those in our worship together. Obviously, the, what's called the common doxology, we use after the offering. Okay? Praise God from all whom all blessings flow and so forth, right? Called the common doxology. There's also what's called the lesser doxology, and that's what we call the Gloria Patri. We do it at the end of the service, right? Okay? Praise be to Father, Son, and Spirit, and so forth. Um, there's also what's called the greater doxology, and this is, some churches use this one, it's based on Luke 2, and the angels are praising God uh, when Jesus was born, and there are even some other ones, especially those used with the Mass in the Catholic Church and other liturgical events and so on. <clears throat> now, for those of you who, <coughs> excuse me, went to the Reformation service last week, Pastor Steve preached on the doxology in Revelation, or sorry, Romans chapter 11. Very common and, and very well-known passage, uh, a doxology there of Paul in Romans 11. We just recited a doxology when we prayed the Lord's Prayer. At the very end, yours is the kingdom, power, and glory forever. That is a doxology. Uh, maybe the most familiar one to us in at least in our circles, is the one in Jude. And so remember it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. That's a doxology. Now you often hear it used as a benediction, but you might recall when I pre preached on Jude, I made the point, this is not a benediction. It is a doxology. And so that's why I don't use it as a benediction uh, now that I've instructed you in that way. All right, so with all that in mind, as we come here to Psalm 111, it begins with, can you say, a call to give God praise to do a doxology. And so Psalm 111 is a doxology for us, a hallelujah to praise God for who he is and what he has done. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> All right, so in uh, some circles... Liturgy is very common and normal, no big deal. For others, liturgy is abhorred. Uh, we try to do a little bit of liturgy, but not too much of it. And so we are used to having doxologies in our worship. Uh, but again, Psalm 111 uh, is, is one of those. That's basically how Israel would have used it. All right, now, let me say a few words about what an acrostic is. Some of you may be familiar, maybe some of you are not. But basically, this takes each subsequent letter of the alphabet, and each line then begins with that next letter. So, for example, in English, the first line would begin with A, second line would begin with B, third line with C, and so on and so forth, 26 letters, from A to Z. But obviously, this is done in Hebrew, 
Um, and so if you look at your handout here for Psalm 111, I highlight that. If you look at the first line, let me praise Yahweh with all my heart and keep going to the Hebrew. And at the very end, at the far right, that's actually the beginning of it. Um, and I made that first letter bigger. And I do that for each of the lines so you can see it. And so the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet is Aleph. The second one is Beit, and then Gimel, and then Dalit, and so forth. So each line begins with a subsequent letter. And there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So hence, we have 22 lines. Okay? And you'll look here that uh, the first eight verses have two lines apiece. Verses 9 and 10 have three lines apiece. Okay, so you see how it's arranged. And Psalm 112 is exactly the same in that way. Okay. Now, <clears throat> notice then that gives us 10 verses, which is somewhat arbitrary. <laughs> but 10, of course, is a number of completion. And as you look at this, you, and, you know, if you look at for my notes after the translation, nowhere do I say that there's any parallelism. This is a different poetic device. Parallelism is the rhyming of ideas, and that's the most common poetic device in Hebrew. In an acrostic, you tend not to have it because it's a different poetic device. And so it's more of a stream of thought, one line to the next, and, and so forth. We can maybe find some collection of thought and put it together, but many times you can't, at least not easily. And so the truth of God requires all of our creativity. And so poetry, remember, as I've said before, accounts for one-third of the Old Testament. And so the poetic description of God in his ways is a huge percentage, uh, and by far the most in terms of our different genres and so on. Narrative is right up there as well. Um, and, uh, and so here is a different way of being creative. And by doing this, yes, it helps them to remember, but the primary reason why they use acrostics is to say something to this effect. Okay? Here's a comprehensive message about whatever it is you're talking about. In this case, it's God, his character, and ways. So like from A to Z, you've said everything you need to say. Now, maybe that's an overstatement, but that's the general idea that you're giving a kind of comprehensive message about, in this case, God. And in Psalm 112, it's going to be about the godly. And so we'll be connected in that way. All right. <clears throat> well, lots of things to kind of get us started here with what this psalm is all about. Let's now begin looking at verse 1, and I want to focus our attention on this today because of the importance of hallelujah, this call to praise here in this section. So the rest of verse 1 says, let me praise Yahweh with all of my heart and the counsel of the upright and the congregation. All right. Now the first thing I want to call your attention here in this way is notice there is an individual focus and a corporate focus. We begin with the corporate focus, right? Hallelujah. Everybody must praise. But then there's this individual focus. Let me praise. And then it returns to a corporate focus again. Counsel the upright and the congregation. We can't do one or the other. 
We need to do both. You will sometimes hear people say, well, I do my worship at church, and then they don't worship God during the week. More commonly today, people say, well, I do my worship at home. I don't need to go to church. And that's especially been the case since the shutdown. Well, I can just go to church online. Um, <clears throat> no, you can't. Church online is not church. You have to be in person. This is the argument of John MacArthur and others, right? <laughs> James Coates. No, we have to be in person. God says we have to be. And here's one of the verses that says so. And so there is an individual focus. There is a corporate focus. I can't just worship God on my own. I need to go to church and worship with others. I can't just go to church and worship. I must worship God during the week too. Both are needed. Now, probably in part to accentuate that point, do you see how the author here gives us different terms for praise? The first one is hallelujah, okay, from halal is the Hebrew word. The second one, let me praise, is a different word for praise. It's from the word for Judah, and you might remember we saw that in Psalm 107 and, uh, and even Psalm 108. And so uh, that word is, is a broader meaning. It's not just to praise but it also has the idea of giving thanks and also even has the idea of confessing our faith in God. And so it may emphasize one of those things in a particular context, but it has a fuller meaning. And then if you turn over to verse 10, the last line in verse 10 is, his praise is standing forever. <clears throat> That's yet another word for praise. Okay, this is the word tehillah for, uh, in the Hebrew. Um, and this one can have the idea of singing. The first two don't necessarily mean singing, but this one tends to emphasize the idea of singing. And obviously, we can praise God without singing. We can praise God by singing, right? Both uh, obviously are possible. So he gives us three different words for praise. It's like he's trying to cover every aspect of praise, all the different thoughts, over the, all the different nuanced meanings, and so on and so forth. All varieties of praise, whether formally and corporately or personally and individually, whether words only, whether song, whatever it is, we must praise Yahweh. That is the chief end of man. This is how we glorify God. And so we are to exalt Yahweh. <clears throat> thank Yahweh, confess our faith in Yahweh, sing our praises to Yahweh. Now, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> if you go to another church, especially a, an evangelical church, you will often see in the service a praise and worship time. And that part of the worship, we're going to now praise God. We're now going to worship God, and usually it's, it's uh, praise songs and praise and worship songs, right? Um, but all parts of the service are an act of praise. What we're doing now is an act of praise and giving God glory. We're focusing on what he wants us to know. When we pray, that's an act of praise, too. Okay? It's an act of glorifying God. 
it, it isn't just when we come to church that we praise God. It isn't just when we pray on our own that we're praising God. But even when we're mowing the lawn or doing the laundry or going to work or school, that can be an act of praise and should be. So when we're talking about praising God, the author wants us to have this comprehensive view. So when you go to class tomorrow or you go to work tomorrow, think of it as an act of praise. Glorifying God in everything that we do. Not just what we do here at church. Not what we just we do only in our prayer closets and so on. Our whole lives. And remember, <clears throat> we're commanded to do this. All right, now, <clears throat> let's look a little more specifically. In the first line then, let me praise Yahweh with all my heart. Again, this begins with the Hebrew letter Aleph, the first letter. Let me praise. All right, now, if you have another translation, it may say, I will praise. And that's because this particular Hebrew word can mean a variety of things. I've talked about it before. But because this particular Hebrew word starts the line, it most likely means an imperative, what we call a cohortative. Let me praise. So the psalmist is not just saying, you need to praise. He's saying, I need to praise too. Okay. I'll return to that thought. Let's look at the rest of the, of the line. <clears throat> with all of my heart. Okay. With all of my heart. Now when we talk about the heart, we tend to think of right, the beating heart pumping our blood. Or maybe we think of our emotions. But in the Old Testament especially, that's not the point. The point of the heart is to mean the whole of the inner person. The whole of the inner person, the whole inner self. So this includes the mind, right? So we must <clears throat> worship according to truth, right understanding. This includes our will, and so my choices to praise, and it includes our emotions, our feelings. So feelings are there, it's just not, that's not all we're talking about, but all of them, mind, will, and emotion. So let's develop this a little bit. The psalm goes on to give us a bunch of reasons why we should praise God. It's filling our minds with thoughts about God, who he is, and what he has done. Certainly we can do that with all of scripture, right? Directing our mind to think rightly about God. So that we will praise him in the way that he deserves. Unfortunately, uh, our view of God tends to be incomplete or even wrong. You go into some churches and who is their God? Well, he's the God of love but not the God of wrath. Well, how are we praising God with our mind that way? It's, it's not complete. Or, or, or maybe God is kind of like a cosmic grandpa. He just gives us whatever we want. Or maybe he's a celestial genie or uh, the cosmic vending machine. You, know, you have these different ideas. So you rub them or put in a few quarters of prayer and he gives you what you want. <clears throat> That's not the God of the Bible. Some people say that God is up there ready to strike you down when you sin. He's got that lightning bolt in his hand or whatever. Some people say that God is just out there. We don't really have any relationship with him. 
Other people say, well, he's just my buddy. Yeah, we get along great. Talk to him every day. You know, but there's, again, an incompleteness about God's character. Some will say that God is not fully sovereign. He is dependent on our choices. Think of our open theist ideas there. Uh, and, and in relation to Psalm 110, right, some people don't believe in the Trinity. Some people don't believe in the incarnation of, of the Son. And on and on we can go. Our understanding of who God is is vital if we're going to keep this command to praise him. We must think rightly about God if we're going to praise him the way he deserves. <clears throat> so as I did briefly in my prayer, I did a brief summary of God's character. We need to think rightly about our God to obey this command. But that's not all. Hey, in our reform circles, we might like this first point, <laughs> but it's more than that. We must have our choices be right too. I must choose to praise God according to his word and according to his character and according to his works. I must fight against the, the, the tendency to limit God and to only focus on some of his characteristics. My tendency is to, to say, well, I, I like the fact that God is loving, so I'm going to focus on that point. Or, or I, I like the fact that God is just, and so I focus on that point. And we, we've got to look at all of it. And that's a choice that we make, too, not just getting it straight in our minds. Or to put it this way, if I choose to be bored in church, or if I'm praying to God on my own, and, I, and I'm like, uh, God, I'm really busy today. I can only give you 10 minutes of my time. That's a choice that we make. We're all busy. If we let our tiredness be an excuse not to worship, either here sleeping in church or falling asleep at home when we're trying to pray, if I choose to think wrongly, if I choose to explain away this command to worship in some way, if I choose to be distracted, whether, again, it's here at church, uh, maybe I'm distracted about what's going to happen at lunch, maybe I'm distracted about what's happening outside, or some outfit somebody is wearing, or whatever it is. Or if I'm at home and I'm, I'm supposed to be praising God, but I'm distracted about my plans for the day, right? we need to choose to praise God, right? my whole heart. If we choose to focus, okay, God, I'm going to set aside 10 or 15 minutes for you today. Or I'm only going to give you an hour on Sunday morning. I just don't see how that fits with my whole heart. Okay. They're excuses, really. Now, thirdly, I must feel like praising God. Now, I think we've all been there where we don't feel like doing it. Hey, maybe we're tired or, you know, whatever it is, we don't feel like praising God, but we must feel it. There must be that, that emotion. This is God, the God of the universe, the God who has made us, the God who has saved us. My heart must be in it 
in the sense that we typically think of, right? My feelings must be in it. He is worthy of it. We must want to. He demands it. And what greater feeling can there be, really? Right? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That, that includes our feelings. Now let's go back to the beginning of this line. Let me praise Yahweh with all my heart. It can be really hard sometimes, can it? Some days we don't feel like it. Sometimes we are so overwhelmed with whatever it is that it's just really hard to do it. But the psalmist is saying, let me praise. It's like he's beating himself into submission. Come on. You got to do this. I don't care if you want to or not, but I must worship God with my whole heart. I'm not just telling you to do it. I must do it. The psalmist is saying. Okay. And if you'd look at verse 10 again here a moment, <clears throat> note the first line this time. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Now to combine that with verse 1, the wisest thing that we can do in life is to praise God. And so if we make excuses not to praise God with our whole selves, our whole heart, we're being fools. Okay. We've all been there, haven't we? We've all been sinners in this way. But God says through this psalmist, that we must praise him with everything that we have. No hesitations, no limitations. And this is wisdom. And this is enjoyment. And if it's not, then we all know where the problem is. Right? It's with me. It's with my attitude. I'm not thinking rightly. I'm not making the right decisions. All right, now let's look at the second line briefly. And this one is the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, so it's the bait. It's actually the B or the V letter in Hebrew. And we translate it here, in the council of the upright and in the congregation. Note that the is assumed in all three places here. Um, it seems like the author is saying it in this way here. Hey, let me praise Yahweh, but notice it's not just me as an individual. It includes me as an individual, but it also includes me as a being with a group. The Council of the Upright probably is referring to a small group. Obviously, it's referring to believers, right? The upright. Uh, but the small group, possibly of leaders, is the, if the psalmist was a priest in the temple, Maybe he's talking about joining with other priests to worship. Obviously, the congregation refers to everybody, all of Israel. So it appears that the psalmist is saying, right, I need to worship as an individual. I need to worship as part of a small group, and I need to worship as part of a, a big group. So the small group could be, right, like some larger churches, they have small groups, or we might say a Bible study. Um, maybe uh, we could talk about our families. Maybe we could talk about um, a leadership team at the church or 
session or a church committee or maybe a, a hymn sing group at the college or, you know, whatever. We're talking about a smaller group of people here. Um, and so individually, smaller group, and then the whole church uh, seems to be the point um, from what he is saying. And so this call from the psalmist is, is this. The call to praise is to be combined individual and corporate. Just me, but also me with others. Okay, so similar to some of what I said earlier on. Now, this call to worship, we have seen since Psalm 107. Now, if we had been going all the way through the Psalms, it would have started in Psalm 104 especially. But we started in Psalm 107, this call to praise. We saw it again in Psalm 108. And here now it is again. And I challenged you in Psalms 107 and 108 to praise Yahweh. Because that's what the Psalm says. I'm doing it again here. You must do it with your whole self. But if you were paying attention, I also indicated I'm challenging myself. And I make that clear here again today. Okay? We've got to practice what we preach. I need to practice what we preach here. What I preach we must praise Yahweh with our whole hearts. And so if you will not, if you want to limit that praise to a certain place or to a certain time or to a certain feeling, then I would say this is not wisdom and this is not obedience. How can we tell our God, I'm not going to praise you with everything that I have? Now, it's easier for me to stand up here during a sermon and focus on proclaiming God's word. But if we're singing or somebody else is praying, my mind can wander too. If I go to another church like I did on Sunday evening, it's easy for me to put limitations on our worship. Okay. But all of those things are sinful. God wants everything. He wants true wisdom. He wants true praise. Okay. Now, you may have noticed that when we started this section here, uh, book five in Psalm 107, <clears throat> that in every one of the prayers that I've done in the invocation, I have emphasized the idea of coming before our God. I did it again this morning. If we come into this building or our prayer closet at home and we envision that we are coming before God himself, if we have Revelation 4 in mind, or Revelation 11, or something like that, right? Uh, Isaiah 6. If we have this vision of God before us, then all the excuses we come up with not to praise are going to go away. If we envision that God is right here with us, then any excuses we try to give to say that I'm not going to praise you with my whole heart, it, it, they're just... Pfft. There's nothing there. Because when we are before our God, we're going to be flat on our faces. He's going to humble us. 
is going to remind us that he deserves everything. And I'm just bringing just, you know, a few minutes of a very pitiful praise. But it also ought to excite us. Right? First catechism again. To enjoy him forever. What greater thing can we do than to come before the presence of our God and praise him in our worship together as God's people, in our worship of him individually and in small groups? It helps us to focus. It helps us to rise above our sinful selves and our excuses. It helps us to rise above our tendency to disobey and not worship with our whole heart. And so, think of this. I've been trying to help you think of this in my invocation prayers. But when you come through these doors, this this has to be your focus. When you go, wherever you go, when you pray on on your own, and you read God's word, this has to be your focus. And so if you're struggling to worship God, then maybe it's because you're not really thinking about coming into God's presence. Now, obviously, none of us do this perfectly. This is why we need Christ, who has worshipped perfectly in our place. But we are commanded to do it adequately and uprightly. We may fall far short of it, but that's no excuse. And so we all can do better. We all must do better. And again, it's the best thing that we can do. So if you leave church without worshiping God, it's your fault. If you leave your prayer closet without worshiping God with your whole heart, you're to blame. I'm to blame. The praise of our God deserves everything we have. And when we do, this is wisdom. When we do, there is blessing. When we do, God is honored. And so, Lord willing, next time, we will look at Psalm 111 that gives us some of the reasons why we should praise our God. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you again for your word and this reminder to praise. We praise you, our God, that you are worthy of all of our praise, of all of our effort, of all of our our uh, mind, will, and emotion to give you praise that you deserve. Lord, forgive us for not doing that. Even in our best efforts, we fall short. But we are thankful for Christ and his perfection in our place and his taking the judgment we deserve for not worshiping you. And we ask then by your spirit that you would help us, not just in this moment, not just when we come to church, but each day, and not just when we come for a specific time to worship, but in all that we do even, in all of our actions and our thoughts and our words, we pray, Lord, that our lives be lives of praise, praising you for who you are and what you have done. And so, Lord, we pray for your mercies in this. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.